0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. When future cocktail historians look back at this era of mixology, the cocktail renaissance, as we like to call it, they will surely devote some time to topics such as the proliferation of speakeasies, and the development of new experimental techniques such as fat-washing. In doing so, they will no doubt devote an entire chapter to New York's Please Don't Tell, or PDT, and the drink that's become synonymous with it, the bacon-infused Benton's Old Fashioned. For those who haven't tried it, the idea of marrying bacon fat and bourbon might not sound appealing. It certainly didn't to the bar's founder, Jim Meehan when the drinks creator Don Lee first proposed the idea. But he was quickly won over and so too have been the countless guests who now pay pilgrimage to this hidden spot for this very drink. Talking us through every aspect of the Benton's Old Fashioned is PDT's now owner Jeff Bell. Jeff's been at the bar for over a decade. He's made, by this point, thousands of batches of fat-washed bourbon and quite literally taken the Benton's old-fashioned global. Fire up the griddle, listener, and get the cheesecloth at the ready as we dive in to another sizzling episode of the Cocktail College podcast. So a man walks into a bar, but before he gets there, He first walks through a classic New York hot dog stand and then a phone booth. At least that's the case if we're drinking at the iconic bar of today's guest, Jeff Bell. Jeff, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Very happy to have you in the studio, this new Vinepair studio that we have. And if we're going to keep rolling with that scenario... I'm going to assume that person is probably ordering a Benton's old fashioned. Am I right in thinking that's your most popular drink at PDT?
1: There's a high probability if you've been to PDT, you've had that drink.
0: Yes, this is the one. This is the one that people come for, among others. But it's uh, it's, it's one of. I mean, PDT. You have one of those classic associations where this is the drink that you have at the bar, and then you have other drinks.
1: Absolutely, penicillin at Attaboy. You know, exactly. There's, there's things. I found it's very helpful for the bar to have that and for any bar to have something like that or a restaurant to have a signature dish because then you have people, it, it, it's like a one-line sign-off to people We're like, oh, you're going to New York? You got to yeah. go to this place and get that. Yeah, exactly. Because you're not going to be like, you should go to this new place. It has this really inventive list. It's going to be a lot of fun. And people are like, whoa, 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 overload because they have this itinerary that they have to accomplish. So it's like, it's like you need a really sharp cadence for each place. Da-dun, da-dun, da-dun. exactly.
0: You go here, you have this thing, you go here, or what do you mean you went to PDT and you didn't have the Benton's old fashioned? What's wrong with you? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things. And I think that is probably good from a like tourist or people visiting town perspective for yourselves. Cause like you say, it's an easy call out. Okay. You're going to New York. You have to do this. You have to have this drink there. It's yeah, great.
1: Exactly. And before my time at PDT, they used to do, um, seasonal flip where they would change the entire menu mm-hmm. and, and they stopped doing that because they found that even the regulars would be like, "What well, you took that off the menu. I want to have that again. <laughs> so it's like keeping a few items that are like always there. So people have that safe thing that don't want to be, you know, yeah. venture out too much. You got to do it. You <laughs> got to have
0: those on there. And you know, this is a pioneering and iconic drink that we're talking about today for a number of different reasons. Um, I think most of all, popularizing the concept of fat washing, so we're going to dive well into that. But first of all, can you tell us the backstory behind this drink and also your journey into arriving at PDT yourself?
1: Absolutely. If we were on the record in Fairfax, Virginia, um, what I'm saying might be stricken from the record because it's hearsay because I wasn't in the room when it happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, I've, I've heard the story many times and I started PDT in 2010 and, yep. and the Benton's old fashion predates me by, by a, a year and a half or so. And the opening bar at PDT was very, no, everyone's like finding themselves in the industry and what, what they're going to do because it was like the frontier. There were great bars like, um, Angel Share, Employees Only, Attaboy, Death & Co. had just opened, but there were, there weren't a lot of, uh, I mean, there's Flatiron Lounge and Pegu, there weren't too many, and I'm forgetting some, I'm just l- listing some of the, the key ones that uh, had already been well-established before we opened. Um, Everyone was trying to figure out what that direction they were going to go in and find their own identity and, and move it forward because no one really thought of it as like a whole part of the industry that could exist or or become what it is. And Don Lee, who created the drink, had this idea, and from my understanding... Him and Jim, Jim Meehan didn't see eye to eye on it being a good idea. Mm-hmm. So the way, you know, Jim told me was like, I just told Don, fine, work on it, but do it in your house. So Don was like, okay. And so Don worked on it in his house and, and brought it back to Jim and it was ready and delicious. And Jim was like, you know, had to eat his hat. He was like, wow, this is very good. You know? <laughs> so it was one of those things where it was that creative, Don's a very creative, technical person. Always learning, always kind of like coming up with new ideas, new techniques, and, and just like, you're not going to stop a person like that, because mm-hmm. they're always going to be doing that. And so, they had, he had a good idea, and it worked. And, and the idea was? The idea was to infuse Benton's bacon into um, bourbon. And, ben, and Benton's bacon, specifically, was kind of coming into vogue in, in the U.S. at the time. David Chang was a big proponent of Virginia hams, and... in and other American cured meats. Well, Benton's is from Tennessee, but at Sambar they used to um, carve Virginia hams like it was prosciutto, Wow. You know, and serve like little meat plates with American ham. <laughs> so he was shining light on 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 American, you know, cured meats. And and Benton's bacon was one that they used. Um, they used to make a dashi uh, out of it for the broth at one of the um, one of the ramen dishes at, at Noodle Bar. So it was something that became this like really flavorful like dish enhancer and so Don was like let's try getting a new cocktail and so um, he basically cooked down the bacon fat or cooked cooked the bacon on low for a long time in its own fat so you never strain it so you use it in, in a pot yeah and what happens is the bacon will start coming crispy and it'll start to like cook itself not from the pan but from the fat itself yeah and then once you get to that point you can you know the bacon super crispy like what it would be on a perfect BLT and then you strain it out and then you have this like, you know, liquid fat, which when you're a kid and your <clears throat> parents make bacon for breakfast, like that goes straight into a tin can or whatever and goes into the, goes into the garbage. And, um, but that's like the consomme. That's like the flavor. So you mix an ounce and a half of that with bourbon and you let it sit for like six hours at room temperature. And then you put it in a freezer and that way, The six hours or so that you let it sit in the whiskey, it just kind of like, it's liquid. It's just like moving around. It's interacting and flavors are rubbing off and that kind of thing. And then when you freeze it, like fat rises and then it hardens at the top. And then you just peel it off like a little fat cap, toss it. (laughs) And then you take the remaining whiskey, which there might be like some little fragments of it, but you want to do this when it's cold. That way when you pour it through a really fine mesh strainer, all all the remnants of fat don't go through. Because if you wait until it's room temperature again, the fat will just go through and you'll have kind of like an oily, an oily bourbon. So you don't want that. And that, and that's kind of like the trick to it is making sure it's ice cold to get it out so that on the other side, you don't have like a super high caloric thing or like something that's going to make the glass oily or whatever. Because, you know, old fashioned, like before the show, we started talking about martinis and, and things like that are just like, they're, they need to be perfect. And they need to be like clear and like you don't, those little bits, like if you don't do that right, it's going to ruin that drink and it needs to be like pristine.
0: Yeah, that texture. And it can, it really can feel kind of, as they say in in some, in the food world, sometimes kind of flabby, right? Or or in wine too, you know, like just too much, too much fat and not enough, Um, maybe acidity or something that's going to kind of pierce through that, right? Yeah,
1: it's really going to be a distraction because it's going to be adding a sensation, a textural sensation that's, that's not pleasant.
0: And that's going to take away from the flavors too, I would imagine. Um, so Don Don Lee comes up with this in this this process or starts using this process, I believe, or I may have read he had to do it at home first, like you said, Jim probably wasn't too enamored by the idea, but then Jim likes the the, the concept, he likes the final drink, and they put it on the menu.
1: Yeah, and it was it was you know it was a fun it was a it was a thing for Jim too because he comes up with this concept for this bar and then the bar becomes known for a drink he didn't create and he always got a, you know, a kick out of that, whether, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, but it's one of those things where it, it it's admirable of Jim to be like this person on the team came up with this. It's helps define what this bar is. That's good for the bar. Yeah. And, and it's not like an ego thing of I'm going to take it off the menu or it's going off in the next cycle because I need it to be my drinks or whatever. So that's always, that's like a, it says a lot about jam being like a great operator, knowing that like set ego aside, this is a great drink. It's, yep. it's going to help move us forward. And that drink's been on the menu for, you know, over 12 years. And we've served, we serve it at PDT in Hong Kong. Anytime I do a pop-up or we've done pop-ups in Hong Kong, Barcelona, Tokyo, uh, Melbourne, we, we travel. I'll travel with like some vacuum sealed bacon fat. And I'm like, we're we make it all <laughs> over the place because it's, <laughs> It's nice to have that one signature. You know, we'd always like to do things, other places we do, you know, seasonal, local, try to get other uh, products involved that make it relevant to there. We always like to bring a taste in New York with us. So yeah. it's really nice to have that, like, uh, that secret weapon. And, and, you know, people like to have that. It's part of, part of bringing the PDT experience to them when we go on the road.
0: What's it like getting bacon fat through customs?
1: Uh, <laughs> it, it, Is that something I, you
0: have to, you do declare or maybe not?
1: I never, You know, the only time I was concerned was when I was going to, uh, was it Dubai or Israel? Either one, because they both have a very tight security at the airport. Uh, it it might have been Israel, because is, the the airport in Tel Aviv is really, like, you're supposed to get there, like, three hours early. And yeah. There's multiple screenings, and they did basically unpack your entire suitcase in front of you. So I was a little concerned about that, but it, I've never been... It's never yeah. been a problem. It's always just a weird thing. Like if the 'cause the converse it's a weird thing for a regular person and then for somebody that works at like for whatever country's equivalent of TSA to explain to them that it's bacon fat for <laughs> that you're gonna put into a drink. Like <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a whole thing. That's wild. Um and so you jo- you join PDT maybe a year and a half then after this drink goes on the menu. I wanted to speak about something that's related to this too, which is PDT becomes known for that, but is also known as the speakeasy. Not the only at the time, I guess, you know, we mentioned Angel Share and, and you could argue maybe um, Milk and Honey, At A Boy Later, you know, similar concepts, but none that take it to the level that PDT does. And I think that sh- concept has just grown so popular since then. Like, What was that like working then and why do you think it proved to be such a hit?
1: Uh, I mean, I tried to go to P- – I moved to New York in 2009. And mm-hmm. probably within the first two months or month that I lived here, my brotherhood moved here before me, was like, you got to go to this bar through a phone booth. And I was, you know, 25 or something like that, 24. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we got to go there. And we, my friend and I were probably drunk. And we were like, oh, I think that bar's around here. Let's go check it out. And then we go in and then no dice, no kinking in it, It's full. So I had it. I had it already – had this understanding of PDT as being kind of like this unique exclusive place. But back then my idea of exclusive was like, I don't know, bungalow eight or, you know, those, I was like, Oh, it's going to be like a cool place to, <laughs> you know where the stars go or something like that. Kind yeah. of like bright eyed. Um, and then, yeah, once I got involved in there, it just became, it felt very special. It was, um, cause I, I went, you know, I went to college, I graduated, I, but I bartended the whole time and and I just didn't really want to go into the professional field that I kind of signed up for after school. And it just I was like, I'm just going to keep on bartending. So, but I did that. And, and this is, you know, 2005, six, something like that. And um, then if you tell your parents or not that I really cared too much about what my parents thought, but in general, the perception was that you're going to go be a bartender. And then what? Or like, what's the next thing? Because it wasn't. It wasn't a glamorous job. I mean, it's, it's like glamorous, like maybe fun. Yep. People think, oh yeah, that's a cool thing. I wish I could do that. Like once, not like until you're sixty. Yeah. You know, because you don't have too much of an outlet after that. Like it's kind of like, this is a job. You're gonna be on your feet. Yeah. You're gonna be kind of dealing with drunk people for forty years. Is that what you want to do? So, so I was on that path, but I was enjoying it, and I, but I enjoyed it because I just enjoyed the the job. I enjoyed dealing with people like making drinks i love that i love the the energy and so once i was able to get a job at pdt it was like i was so proud and i was so excited because i was like this is special because this is so different from anything i ever imagined my occupation that i really like i'm passionate about um could actually do something more with it and there's like it you know i started at pdt in 2010 they'd already won world's best bar at Tales of the Cocktails. So people refer to wow. it as like the world's best bar. Yeah. And I'm like, I work at the world's best bar. I mean, obviously.
0: That's wild Yeah, to so, think about that.
1: Yeah, it was really, really a trip. And um, so that, that process was, was really fun. And I never took it for granted what, what mm-hmm. I was uh, involved in. And, and, and I really kind of bought into the system. And, you know, but I started as a barback, And so I was in charge of making the Benton's batch. So I was, you know, <laughs> on 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 fat-washing detail. You're you very know. familiar with ever, this, ever, this entire process. Every Thursday, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, I think you mentioned something, maybe your brother first bringing the bar up to you. It's funny, I think everyone who's ever heard of PDT or has been to PDT, almost everyone probably has that story. I remember myself, I was um, still based in London, working as a chef, and one of my close friends and a colleague of mine, he had just been to New York. I'd never been to New York. And he came back with all these stories of like, you know, he went to Cat's Deli, he went to this place, he went, he's like, I think this this was, two, yeah, I think this was 2012. He'd been to Williamsburg. Williamsburg was, you know, this is 10 years ago. And he was, told me about this one bar that he went to, where they went through the phone booth. And he was like, it was the most incredible thing. And I was like, oh my God, I got to, I got to see that one day. Do you know what I mean? It just absolutely the hearing about it. The fact that that was ten years ago, and I can still remember the first time I heard about that, says a lot about PDT and just the 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 speakeasy movement that followed.
1: Yeah, it definitely was a like lightning in a bottle kind of moment. You know, um, the 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 style of of the design of bars becoming speakeasies, or from the outset in in certain places, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, yep. Sometimes it's it's just just theatrics, it, and it's really New York and in other cities like Tokyo or London, Paris, really any older city that has a lot of character to it is kind of ideal for a hidden bar, because if you have a dense population, it's almost like you don't want to have that sign outside, that, that big red sign that says bar on top, because yeah. you're like, we don't want everybody to come in, because we want the people that want to come in to come in. Right. And the way buildings are designed and how expensive commercial real estate is, it, it small spaces, sometimes you have to go up like through a little alley up a flight of stairs to get to 1,000 square feet that some landlords can be like, okay, you can have it for this price. And okay, so we'll open a bar there. Now we got to figure out how to get people from the street to here. Um, so people open them all over the place. People love that experience of this uh, transformative experience of yep. going from one space to the next. And I and when you go to PDT, it's just you're – in the East Village, so it's like Saint Mark's is an amazing street. It's funky. Yep. It's insane. It's it's full of characters. It's always been like that. Every generation thinks that it's like it's dead, but it's just it's just that means you're too old, and the new generation has taken over. Exactly. And it's, a, it's the new personalities, the new the new captains of that street. <laughs> so you walk along Saint Mark's is always an experience, and then you go down into a hot dog place. There's loud music, people crushing like high lifes and smashing hot dogs, and and then you go into a phone booth. And then the wall opens up and you just get like a little glimpse of like a leather, a diamond tufted leather bankette and a brick wall. And you're like, in taxidermy, you're like, what is this place? And then you turn the corner and you see the bar and it's like there's two bartenders that are just like shaking cocktails or stirring or moving because it's busy. And it's just this like, you go through these three three atmospheres and you're like, your environments rather, and it's just, it's cool. It's cool to have that experience. You feel
0: like an insider. Exactly. You cross that door and you're like, there are so many people around here that don't know what's going on in here and I'm but I'm here this is cool.
1: Oh yeah, it you know this is a this tangent but last summer we did uh, well, we're doing another one this summer too but last summer we took advantage of the open streets NYC and created a new concept to to do on the on St. Mark's Place. So on Friday, Saturday and Sunday they um, they close it to auto traffic and so we were able to set up a bar. We set up and break it down every day. It's a real hassle. Uh, but we did one out there last summer called PDT Tropical and it was a Caribbean style cocktails, a lot of fun, but I worked every, pretty much every shift out there, which was such a departure from the previous 10 years where I was working Friday and Saturday nights inside. So I was like, I work every night in New York city. I only see this little segment of the, of the drinking population. Yeah. So then last summer I was like, this is what happens out here at night (laughs) every weekend I was inside yeah like like, it gets wild inside I mean not like you know you get some interesting characters but outside is like a whole different story it is unfiltered yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's really crazy to think about that just um you know I mean that's essentially the job isn't it you're committing to like you said earlier you're but you're committing to those Fridays and Saturdays being like okay I'm, and if you're working in a place like yourself, not seeing the sun go down and you're just, you know, you go to work and then you get out, it's dark. And then you see the sun come up. Yeah. (laughs) You see the sun come up though. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Thursdays, fat washing duty. You spoke us through the process before. I wonder if we can just dial into it a little bit more because this is of course something, it's a, it's a template, right? That can be used for, for different fats, but if we are talking about um, bacon fat washing for the purposes of today's episode, so you really want to make sure you're avoiding to burn the bacon at all. So yeah. it's, it's comfying the bacon essentially and it, it low, will still crisp.
1: Yeah, low heat, low, yeah. low and slow is important. If you go high, like you ever like burning, I don't know the like the burning point of, of bacon grease, I, I, I should know, but... I know when you get, if you cook it on high for a long time, your whole house is going to, or kitchen's going to smell like smoke. Yeah. And so it doesn't take long. Smoke is very powerful. So it doesn't take, doesn't take much to overcook the bacon to get it to taste smoky. Yeah. And, and, and smoky and not in a, in a pleasant way. It's right. Like a, you, you, you're you not controlling the level of smoke that gets into the liquid at that, at that point, And it's going to taste burnt. So that, that's not good. So low temperature. Um, We used to get the bacon fat in quart containers Pre-rendered for us from Momofuku, but they don't do that anymore. So we now we buy the bacon direct from from Benton's, and they ship us like eight pounds at a time. And I would say the process takes like I haven't cooked, I haven't done it in a while. The last time I did was was maybe September because we have a good a good team that handles a lot of that prep. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it takes about forty five minutes. Oh, you know? really? So well, a real but that's like eight pounds. Yeah, in yeah. A huge in a huge kettle, and it, right. And I just put the kettle. Um, on our flat top and that way it's it, it's gonna stay even lower yeah um just because it's not gonna you're not gonna undercook it mm. so so i just do it that way and
0: low and slow and and stirring we'll, it all the time okay and removing that bacon essentially where it's you know by the time you take it out it will very soon crisp up just by by nature of being out in the exactly. air or whatever but yeah it's yeah, it's it crispy should,
1: <laughs> it should taste like perfectly cooked bacon when mm-hmm. it's done like,
0: what do you do with the bacon after?
1: We do some uh, Benton's egg and cheese tots. Nice. So, we just kind of do a non-verbal or an, an off-menu, like a non-a uh, verbal special, you know, mm-hmm. instead of you know, bacon egg and cheese, Benton, Benton's egg and cheese. So, mm-hmm. put that with American cheese and uh, a fried egg on top of tater tots. Delicious. So, do that until the till the bacon runs out.
0: <laughs> and the one and a half ounces you said that would be what for one uh, Seven fifty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and. Am I right in thinking it's Four Roses Yellow label that you use or Correct. it was originally?
1: We, we've we always used, as long as I've been there, it's been Four Roses Yellow label. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the first one. Four Roses is, is a unique bourbon because it's 40% ABV. Yes. And, and most bourbons that are really good aren't. There's a few. Um, Basil Hayden's is 40. Um, but the, yeah, I'm not going to mention the ones that I don't like that are 40. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't can't remember everything off the top of my head that's at 40, but... Bourbon typically tastes really great at 45. Yeah. Um you get some at 50 that are great and then, you know, there's some wizards out there that can make it taste great at like 63, you know, like uh Bookers, Bookers. or something, like 67 or something like that. I think it's Elijah
0: Craig 65. is another one that comes to mind that barrel proof.
1: Yeah, those 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 are hard to find good ones at that strength, but 45 seems to be kind of like that sweet spot, and every category kind of has that sweet spot. Yeah, you know? for sure. So uh that's yeah, so it, that always kind of stuck out to me is like 40% for four for roses and, and it happens to be the one we use for it. But I, and I never asked Don why. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the next time I see Don, I'll, you know, I'll have to ask him.
0: I, I, I wonder whether it's the the high rye content just you know, bringing that spice because we're, we're adding luxury or decadence, maybe, is a better word with the with the bacon fat. And maybe I just think that that, that rye spice of Four Roses maybe adds that just kind of like a seasoning.
1: Yeah, maybe like a perceived strength or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's something. So it's so it's an ounce and a half of bacon fat per 750. And then a quarter ounce of, we use uh, deep mountain maple. And they're at the Union Square Green Market um, every Friday and Saturday. And they're amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, this is in the fat washing. No, this is
1: no, sorry. I've gone beyond the fat washing. Sorry. Okay. The the rest of the recipe. Okay. Uh,
0: We'll jump into that. I've got a few final questions before we do though. So, um, you talked about the process. I'm assuming Four Roses then is also like a already chill filtered bourbon. I don't know this off the top of my head, but I imagine it probably would be just for the price and the ABV that it is because you know, if you're really geeking out about this, like you might get to a point where you're, if you're using non chill filtered bourbon, and then you're freezing, and you're passing off the solids, like you're gonna pass off some of the the, the oils from that you whiskey might loo- itself.
1: Y- yeah, you might lose some flavor. So yeah, that's yeah. a good point.
0: Um, so another great reason for using one, which is you know, like a, a an entry level bourbon in that line. Yeah,
1: yeah, and in American whiskey is just a great. Category, especially like the classic brands, because they're very, they're very inexpensive for what they are. Yeah, you know, bourbon is a pretty high quality tier for the price point it's at, and mm-hmm. we're lucky it's staying that way. You know, there's really, you can get really expensive bourbon, obviously, but you can spend twenty five dollars at a liquor store and get a phenomenal bottle of bourbon. For sure, I don't know any other category where you can get a, something phenomenal for twenty five bucks that's been aged for six years. Yeah, yeah,
0: a hundred percent. It's it's it really is a marvel. Um, you mentioned, so once that freezes, are you freezing that in, in kind of open containers? Cause you mentioned peeling away the fat mm-hmm. and then straining it. So what, what are we thinking when it comes to, to that? So you actually, you just, sorry, I, to back on. up a little bit, leaving it to infuse at room temperature for mm-hmm. roughly
1: how long? I said six, but it's like four six, to six hours. Four yeah. to
0: six it, hours. It, are you stirring that in throughout that time or not really?
1: No, nah, you just... You'll you'll see when you do it that you just, I always pour the bourbon out first and then I pour the fat into the bourbon. And it's always like, you know. Yeah. If you were to like, you know, smoke pot or something, it might be really fun for you to watch because the way the the liquids, (laughs) you know, or if you're on any sort of substance that make you look at it funny, (laughs) might be a nice experience. But it is, it makes for a good video if you're doing it for your, uh, you know, a lot of people do things just for Instagram or for for TikTok or whatever. So if you want to do it, it's it's nice to look at. But you pour the fat in and it creates this like, like almost like, um, what it reminds me of when you fly, if you fly over the North pole or if you go to Asia and you fly over the top of the world, you look down, and you can see like the, um, you know, the Arctic circle or whatever. And you see like the cracks in the ice and you see like this, like, or like a desert too the same kind of thing. Yeah. That's the kind of like pattern it has on top, which is kind of cool. And then that's very cool. Cause it kind of starts to s- separate on its own yeah and then you just do the let that sit and then and then freeze it and then, then it freeze turns it you know into and a thick layer
0: wonderful and then what are you straining it through once you've peeled off that thick, that thick layer
1: we we use a um for lack of a better we use a chinois, which yep. is uh you know a very fine mesh. Very fine strainer like, looks like a you know a screen like a screen that has like triple the density of uh of of weaving um, that and a and a kitchen towel or a cheesecloth, something, something just to layer it so that make sure nothing comes through. Yeah. So it, it takes a little bit of time for it to, to liquid to get through, but you just don't want any of the, any of the bits.
0: Mm-hmm. And from a kind of health perspective, is this thing shelf stable at room temperature? How long will it last? Or we're, we we do not need to worry about any of that stuff.
1: W- yeah. We haven't done a test for, for duration of time beyond what we you know, we make a batch a week. Okay. It's definitely good for a week. I haven't.
0: How many bottles does
1: that? Um, we do about 18 bottles a
0: week. Wow.
1: Yeah. So when we're really humming about, about that, yeah. Nice. So a case and a half.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible to think about that. And so the, yeah, then talk us through the, the next ingredients. We've spoken about bourbon here. Of course, maple is the next one that you're using, um, I think you were mentioning a specific brand.
1: Yeah, I really, you know, again, I think it was something that really to press upon in the early days of it because, or maybe I'm just thinking of my experience with maple syrup, maybe because I'm from like a small town America, like working class where maple syrup never had any maple in it, you know, <laughs> like Mrs. Butterworth's or something like that. Like I don't think maple's actually involved in that process. I think it's um, high fructose corn syrup water yeah. and like... Um, Flavors, there's coloring. Like <laughs> what is it called? Oh my gosh! There's this herb. It's like Persian herb that they use in artificial maple production. I can't remember what it's called. I'll I'll, I'll figure it out offline. Um, but yeah, so that's like what I uh, uh, my experience was. So I and I think and I feel like that might be something that was more common in you know 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when when the whole world became more about mass produced efficiency and that kind of thing. But now I think using real maple syrup is a bit more ubiquitous. Yeah. But as long as you're using, you know, Vermont's kind of like the best, you know. You can the create, best great source. Great maple from upstate New York and in certain parts of the U.S. you can get it. But Vermont's, we think, is the best. Mm-hmm. So, And then we know the the family that owns it. And, and they're, this guy, Lee, who's one of their representatives, he works the stand every week. And he's just an amazing guy. And so we just I like to go there and buy it from him directly. Nice. Um, we get that, you know go through like a gallon, half gallon a week, maybe something like that.
0: And it makes sense. It just ties back into the whole idea of the, the kind of, if you're looking at it from an American point of view, the the, the maple and the bacon, rather than using a different um, sweetening agent for this.
1: Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that like brown sugar would be great too. You know, that, there's always like candied bacon, like, cause bacon always tastes great with some sort of sweetness, but um, maple, you know, you just think of like this all American breakfast with like perfectly cooked bacon, some eggs, hash browns, and, and you know, maple or maple syrup on uh, pancakes, There's and, a, like, glass and well. a, gla- a glass of bourbon as well. A glass of bourbon, yeah. I believe
0: one of the I'm sure many of them did, but I think there is one president who who's famous for drinking. He was a fan of old granddad, and he used to take a glass of, of bourbon with his morning walk. I forget who it was now, but um, oh, that information know. is out there somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, classic American <laughs> breakfast. Um, final component of the drink, of course, bitters. This is an old fashioned. Are you keeping it classic for this one? Yeah, Angostura. Angostura.
1: Yeah, it just, I, f- I don't want to, sp- I don't speak too much on what Don was thinking at the time, but thinking of, the, I'm looking back to the availability of what else is out there, and and I always think of like, you create something or buy something if it does something that another product can't do. Yeah, and and at the point. I don't, I'm trying to think of what was commercially available in 2007, 2008. Yeah it, was, yeah, it wasn't too much, so you had to kind of make your own. And you already have this, like, except, like, the best bacon in America, best maple syrup in America, one of the best bourbons in America. So should we then adult, adult to this by just throwing a bunch of herbs and grain alcohol and some sugar and seeing what happens? Wow. No. So it's like, well, let's take the best bitters in the world. Yeah, um, You know, and is great. And, and I feel like it's it's something that you know, I saw somebody reposted the drink the other day. They said, "Oh, make the drink with two to three dashes," and I was like, two to three? I, I <laughs> people love to get like bitters heavy, and I feel like there needs to be a threshold of with salt or yep. bitters and things that like it's serving its purpose until it's doing until it's stealing the spotlight. And in and, and three dashes of Angostura is too much for that drink. Yeah, and I just think. Some drinks might call for for a lot of bitters, and that's fine, and that makes sense for that particular drink. But I I, I like two, yeah, um, it, it because you start getting that bitter feel on your tongue and that spice that is detracting you from the other thing. So it's two dashes. Um, if you put it in the RI, you know, do four.
0: Yeah, I do think as well. I think that's one component of this cocktail that also when it's in the right amount, but but when you can taste it. It does call back to the classic old fashioned because we, you know, we're changing we're changing the format of the old fashioned here, right? We're 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 tweaking the other ingredients, so I think it's nice to have that kind of very slight baseline of something that's familiar and and, and always pulls you back to the the classic form of the drink.
1: Absolutely, and and that's this is a, a, a great drink just to show like the way uh, a bartender's mind works and a bartender that creates a lot of drinks and um you, you're what you're you're doing is you're you're adding flavor to things that already exist in that drink so you know instead of sugar you're using maple which is a more flavorful sweetening agent you know you're enhancing the bourbon not you know, enhancing means making it better but you're altering the flavor of the bourbon by infusing something into it so it's a nice way to make a drink that exists slightly more complex yeah and, and what bacon does and i'm not like a huge bacon fan i'm not like oh anything with bacon add bacon like <laughs> it exists it's good i have it from time to time i think it's you know it's exceptional but it's not a major part of my life and i'm not you know pork belly bacon things are like buzzwords for some people like oh i got to have it yeah <laughs> but um what it does it, it adds this like kind of difficult sensation to describe you know so maybe like umami or something there's like a yeah. savory component that Actually, it adds this is it. a
0: great point because you know if anyone listening hasn't tried this drink gig I think we should have probably, I should have clarified early on. This is not a drink that tastes specifically of or strongly of bacon, right? Like, what, 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 how would you describe the quality that it adds? You were saying umami there.
1: Yeah. There's like a little bit of smokiness from the bacon, but not like, not like peat, not like a, not like an Isla Scotch, not like a young Isla Scotch. Mm -hmm. Um, I say young Isla because I love, um, Scotch whiskey from that region that's like 18 years old, 25 yep. years old, because the, I feel like the peat kind of wears off a little bit yep. and it's a bit more, um, approachable for somebody like me. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you get this like savory, um, sensation and a little hint of smoke to it. And it's not, it's not like you can make this drink with scotch in place of bourbon. It's going to taste the same, So it's very different. Um, and the, the way the maple rounds it out, I, lo- I mean, love maple and cocktails. It's a vape, it's a great ingredient. Um, so it just has this like I always think of old fashioned stirred cocktails, old fashioned Manhattan's martinis, to have like a spherical flavor. Like I want it to be round. Yeah. You know, I really want it to have like this texture is a is a really important part of those drinks. And I in in the texture is enhanced by the bacon infusion. And it's not fatty. It's no. almost like it's that like get that to that texture that you get when you put a bottle of gin in the freezer, and it has like this oily this takes on like this more new, viscous yeah. kind of texture where it it's like once it hits your palate, it takes more time for it to like cover the rest of it, you know. And yeah. that's that's what I love about this drink because it does that um, more more so than a, than a other like a classic great old fashioned does.
0: A hundred percent. So can you now talk us through as if you were making this drink for us here in the studio today? Can you talk through the preparation, including we have mentioned them, but including the the quantities of ingredients as you're doing so?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if anybody was listening earlier, you'd really have to uh have taken notes or or, <laughs> yeah. or paused and rewinded it to get to the ingredients because I've gone a little tangential with it. Um but the important things are, you know, rocks glass, ice, a mixing glass any sort of vessel will do like you don't like, you can have a nice one from you know from cocktail kingdom or you can get one you know from bar time store in tokyo which ships to the u.s which make really great ones you know you can just some sort of vessel to mix with angostura bitters an orange um maple syrup and the bacon infused whiskey so you can get the i, I recommend benton's you can buy it direct from from them. You can call them. There's like a lovely woman named Deborah that Hi Debbie. answers the phone. Deb, <laughs> Deb, the Southern woman, and you know I call an order from her, and they ship it out like that day, so it comes within a few days. Nice. Um, so it's a nice treat. And then you can use some for this, and then you can, well, you can make breakfast some Sunday morning or Saturday morning, and cook, eat the bacon, and have this for the a nice byproduct to have around the house. So you lay out your ingredients. Um... You know, the typical way to build is smallest to largest. Um, so that way you're not messing up, you know, at home, you're not wasting your precious bourbon. If you're in a bar, you're not, you know, w- wasting the most expensive item. Uh, yes, two dashes of Angostura bitters, um, a quarter ounce of maple syrup. Um, and then you want to make sure all that maple gets out because it's very viscous. So like let, let all those drops get in there. And then two ounces of the bacon-infused bourbon, you know, add ice and stir. And then, um, I like to keep my rocks classes in the freezer behind the bar at PDT. We have a glass chiller. Most bars have that. Um, and we use big cubes. We buy them from, uh, Okamoto, Shintaro Okamoto in Long Island City. Nice. They're not essential. They are, they look great. They're perfectly clear. The aesthetics, it, it helped. I think an old fashioned looks really great on a big cube. Um, can you make it on cold draft or ice from your freezer? Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it's fine. Um, so I, I, if you have that, or you get an ice mold, um, many kitchen stores sell them these days. That it it helps. Um, so there, you mix the mix the add ice to your mixer, your mixing glass, stir it, thirty seconds, and then strain it into pull, You know, keep the rocks glass in the freezer until you need it. Rocks glass out of the freezer, add ice to that, and then strain uh, the drink into the rocks glass, and then just give it a little little twist of orange. So we cut the orange. I cut, I use a knife and do like discs the size of a quarter. And uh, I don't do a big peel. And then all I do is I just squeeze it to express a little bit of oil over the top. I don't rub the rim of the glass or get all crazy with it or like it, it just needs a hint of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that citrus oils in abundance uh, become quite bitter and, and distract from the drink itself. Um, so I, I like it to be quite simple. And and then I just set that little orange peel coin on top of the ice cube. And that way you have a little bit of a orange aromatic as you drink. Mm-hmm. And this helps, you know, it looks, it adds a little color pop to, you know, a brown liquid in a glass.
0: Very nice. And then we're ready. And then
1: you're ready. Yeah. Ready and, dr- to dr- enjoy. and drink quickly, you know, uh, and not like recklessly fast, but, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not going to get any better. Yeah. Uh, you know, so <laughs> really like, Something like that. It's like ten minutes. It's gonna be good. Yeah, probably the first five. Well, not that you should. I'm not advocating to like
0: go wild, but
1: but for if you want to really enjoy it, it's the longer it sits in ice, the worse it's gonna get. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many times I've gone to a table to like pull glasses, thinking they're done, and they're like, "Oh, I'm still working on that." You're like, "Okay." I mean, <laughs> there's no ice left in the drink. <laughs> like it's all it's all melted. I'm yeah. Like, it's just it's like ninety percent water, ten percent cocktail at this point. Like that 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 can't really. Mm-hmm be that good um but yeah i i i'm a fan of eating eating food while it's hot drinking cocktails while they're cold yeah you know and talking about them afterward instead of like sitting you know for 45 minutes with the same cocktail in my hand like mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah it, it's not going to take whether it's served up or on crushed ice or any anything is or if it's a hot drink like you drink your hot coffee when it's hot I, like there's a temperature temperature is a very important part part of the thing about any sort of great food or drink you know it's like you know, sparkling water is best from the fridge.
0: Yeah, um,
1: coffee. Have it. You know, tea is best when it's hot. Like, you know, so I just think acknowledge that and drink drink it that way.
0: Fantastic. So before we jump into the next part of the show, any final thoughts on the Benton's Old Fashioned, Jeff?
1: Oh, you know, it's also my favorite drink to have ordered. You know, one there was one night years ago where we were like going for a sales record. And these eight guys came in. Our biggest booth holds eight. And it was like twenty minutes to last call, or maybe thirty minutes to last call. And we were like so close. And they sat down, and they were eight old fashions, eight Bentons old fashions. And then the server took them over, like you know it's last, it's last call. And they were they were they were in good shape. They were in a place where they could have multiple drinks in in succession. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have done that. But they're like they take their first sip, like damn, these are good. Let's let's do another round. So it was like. This one table had 16 drinks, in you know 30 minutes, and that got us over the hump. So like, I've always loved making 'cause it's a fast, it's a fast build. It goes out quickly. People love it, and you know, it's nice to have some, some softballs for the bartenders to make on yeah. the menu. You know, sometimes it's, uh, it makes the job a little bit easier.
0: It's important to note that, and and we were actually having this conversation. And in a recent episode with um, Toby Cicchini about the Cosmo, which is like, it is important to hear that from a guest perspective that you guys don't mind making these drinks that you're kind of known for, that have become classics that, you know, I feel sometimes people can almost be a little bit apologetic.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't don't get it. I mean, if you work at the Buena Vista Cafe and you don't like making Irish coffees, then you should find a new job. Exactly. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't, I never really got that. No. You know, I... There's like, maybe it's because I have kids now or something, and I don't have much as much of like an ego about that. But there's this thing sometimes when bartenders put off this energy where, like, the person ordering from them is wasting their time. <laughs> like, uh, I think it's the other way around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're giving them attitude, you're wasting their time. Yeah, this the one's spending mm-hmm. to the money to be there right now. <laughs> um, I like to meet people whatever they want. You know? yeah. I want, have to have a nice time. I like to steer them in a direction that, I can help them like this is probably a better, a great drink for you. But if they have a firm opinion on something else, by all means. Yeah. You know, if it's too, if it's, if it's Old fashion isn't sweet enough. Sure. Here's a little maple mm-hmm. to add to it. Like I don't care because if you're, if you don't drink alcohol normally, this might be too strong for you. Or if you like sweet things, we'll add a little bit to it to make mm-hmm. it for you. You know, I don't, I, th- there's not an absolute, with these things. I, I mean, I think there is from my perspective if I'm consuming them because it's what I've done for, you know, 20 years. Um, but for a regular person coming in, like they're in there to have a good time, mm-hmm. to be with their f- people and let's make it, let's make it as nice as we can for them.
0: Yeah. They're going to PDT. They're having the, the Benton's old fashioned. Nice to come full circle there to the, to our opening. Um, but we are going to jump into the next part of the show here where are we going to get to know yourself a little bit better, Jeff, with our five weekly recurring questions. All right. Let's do it. Question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar?
1: American whiskey. Yeah. Eh, more skewed towards bourbon. Um, yeah. I, oh, American if you were to say agave it but it's a break you know split between tequila mezcal, mezcal and in 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 stuff like that um but yeah so bourbon probably has the most space in the back bar and then mezcal
0: mhm would you say those are the two ones that off get most often called out in terms of to to buy to sip or to shoot yeah, 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 they
1: get they get the most. <clears throat> we deplete the most of that from people just ordering them. Just ordering them. I I've tried. You know, when we f- when I first started, we had a ton of like different amari yeah. and stuff like that on the bar, and 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 we we would sell it and we use it in drinks, and then I three or four years ago, I was like, we should have more brandy, you know, more Calvados, more Cognac, Armagnac, American brandy. American brandy. Um, and I, I, so I put a bunch up there and there's just some beautiful bottles that no one ever touches. Mm -hmm. The only time they do is if I'm like, you got to drink this. Mm -hmm. Like you have to have this like Paul Bow VSOP or sorry, the Paul Bow or Dodge Mm -hmm. 30 year old Cognac. We get it for a hundred bucks wholesale. Like it's exceptional. It's, it's like some of the best cognac you could ever have. It just sits in the back bar. Yeah, nobody touches it. So <laughs> I'm waiting for like the trend to oscillate into the brandy area because you can get some great Calvados, Armagnac, and cognac,
0: mm. and American a, and a Amer- field you're very familiar yeah, with yourself. Absolutely,
1: yeah, quite familiar with the American brandy field. Yeah, there's great stuff out of California, and it, yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's an exceptional category. It's just it's not having its moment yet uh, no. for the for the general public. Bourbon is bourbon and mezcal are definitely there. Scotch has always been not always, but Scotch and Japanese whiskeys, or mm-hmm. they just sell themselves. Yeah, you know? somebody sees a Yamazaki on the back bar or Hibiki, like, done. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's wild the popularity of those. Question number two here for you: Which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Whew. The most undervalued tool. Y- you know, what makes this hard is that our toolkit's so small. You know, we're, <laughs> I feel like bartenders, like I can go to a house and make drinks without any of my tools. Like I would say undervalued would be a hand citrus press. That's, that's my final answer because how the hell are you going to get juice out? You know, that's a, yep. that's a hard, like lemons, like in mass, if you want to make drinks for five people and you're at somebody else's house, and they don't have a citrus press. That is That's, a pain in the ass. Yeah, You can use a knife to stir a drink. You can use a pint glass to make a drink in. You mm-hmm. can use a tea. There's all sorts of things you can find in the kitchen to mm-hmm. to finish that process. I use, we were on vacation in uh, Puerto Rico, and I was making, what, daiquiris or something for my in-laws. And we didn't have a shaker, so I just took a Yeti. Mm-hmm. And, I you know, the one that has the the attachment that you can drink out of. And I just um, put the Yeti on. And I just shook it. And I was like, well, that's actually quite good. And then unscrew the cap. And then it already has a little bit of a filter on there. Yeah. So I just <laughs> use that as the, as the cocktail shaker. So I would say most of the tool, like I have really nice tools, but that's just like a luxury. I like to have, you know, good equipment to, to mm-hmm. work with. But they do very simple things. Like uh, I, bartending is like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're shaking. It's you're doing this or you're doing that. There's not you know,
0: I'm so with you on the, on the press. So not too long ago, recently here at the VinePair office, Cinco de Mayo, I think it fell on a Thursday this year. And we're like, okay, I was like, I'm going to make margs for the office. You know, it's classic. And went across the street to the deli to get some limes. Their limes were terrible. They were pretty hard. You know, obviously limes are expensive at the moment and everything that's going on there. But I was like, okay, at least I got together maybe 12, 13 limes. Came back. There were 12 of us in the office at the time, I think. And I was like, taking orders from people, go to make the drinks, have everything laid out. Where's our citrus press? Oh, someone had taken it to a uh, photo shoot a couple of days before and hadn't returned with it yet. I was squeezing these hard limes by hand. It's the worst. It was so so bad. And I was getting some of the limes, I was getting maybe a quarter, half an ounce of juice out of max just because of how bad they were. Yeah. It was terrible. Uh-huh. Yeah, so as soon as you said that i'm like i am with you on this one
1: yeah i think it's so and you get to get get a good one too like the Sir la Table, the, on their website they have a nice it's like a double jointed one so it really gives you a lot of leverage to get the maximum juice out of it but yeah that's i would say that's the most underrated because every, people don't think about that one because everybody's gonna have a commercial juicer in their yep. house where they you know some mm-hmm. in their house or in their bar where they're there's a prep person mm. or somebody's, you know, juicing it. So you have all this juice on hand before you open. Yeah. Or some bars have like a Hamilton beach, like press on the bar. Um But yeah, once, if that thing breaks, you're in a, you're in yeah, a tough yeah, shape.
0: Yeah. It's rough. Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: Good question. Um, I don't know if there's like one singular piece that, that has changed like the way I thought. I think that I, you know, I learned a lot from Jim at PDT. Uh, there's a guy named Jay Fleming that I worked with at McCormick, McCormick's Fish House and Bar in Seattle from 2005 to 2009. And he was like, I was in my early 20s and he was in his late 40s, early 50s. And he'd been doing it for a long time. And those two people taught me so much. And Jay taught me a lot about just how to deal with people, like how to cut people off, how to organize your bar station, how to be efficient working your way from one side of the bar to the other, instead of just walking from one side of the bar to the other. So he just gave me a little, like he was a great teacher. He was very tough on me. Um, which was probably good for a 22 year old. <laughs> um, kept me in line. But that lot, I wouldn't be able to do what I've done today if I didn't have that kind of training. Like that's how to manage a bar. The physical part of a bar is very difficult, and it's something that's it's hard to train because it's like bartending is a trade in that way. Where you think of like you're kind of like an apprentice, and you're you get better over time. You get more skilled at that thing. The kind of intangibles. You'll see it. You'll see an old school bartender at at certain places around the city, and you're like, "Damn, that yeah. person's great." Like they they just somehow cut that person off, and then they told them a joke, and now that that person just got cut off, and they love that person. It's like how how does that happen? Like that's that's a skill. You have to be very you know firm and diplomatic. Yeah, um, that's difficult. But you know, so the, of the act of bartending, Jay taught me t- a ton of stuff, and then kind of more in the 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 optics and business of bartending and like patience. Jim taught a lot, you know, about kind of just putting yourself into this place and 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 help grow the bar, let the bar help grow you and have this kind of um uh, cohesiveness, like uh mutual beneficial relationship yeah. with the place you work. And and that that turned out to be really well. And you know, Jim is always very good about te- um tempering my uh ambitions, you know, like that might not be a good opportunity for you. Think of like, like at the TV show. Okay. What's the cast? What's the premise? What's okay. Yeah. This sounds like a real housewife situation. I shouldn't do that. You know? Yeah. Things like that. Like very, a very good mentor of mm-hmm. like, cause when you're, when you're a young bartender or every young person, the, the first bit of attention you get, you're like, Oh man, I'm amazing. Yeah. This is great. I'm gonna go after this. But it's like not taking a lot of the opportunities was, was really important. And just kind of, you know, and I stayed put. I worked, I mean, I've been at PT 12 years. Yeah. And it's been great. I could have done other things. I just feel like it's a, I have a nice relationship with the business. Mm-hmm. I mean, now I own it, but mm-hmm. it's, um, I've always, you know, thought the bar is always going to be more famous than the bartender. The only time it's like not is like, Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. (laughs) Jimmy Jimmy Buffett might be more famous than (laughs) Margaritaville. Margaritaville's not that good. Um, But it's one of those things where like Dave Chang is super famous, amazing. I mean, he's, but Momofuku's, I mean, Dave's gotten into the the, the podcast and he's done a lot of TV now, so he might might be a little bit more. But for a long time, Momofuku's still a bigger name. And, th- and that's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of nice because then you can, you can put in your energy and help grow this thing that's bigger than you. And then when your time's over working there or being behind the scenes, somebody else can take over and, mm-hmm. and keep it going. And it becomes this, you're, you're almost like a, a caretaker of something mm-hmm. that's bigger than you. And that's the way I think about PDT is like, I can create more, you know, working on other projects on the side, but like my most important thing is to make sure P E T is like stays mm-hmm. on course. You're a custodian. Like, yeah, exactly. We have 13 more years left on the current lease. So we just turned 15. So we'll be 28 when the lease is out. Wow. Up. So <laughs> ideally, you know, in 25 years, we'll start to, or, uh, not sorry, when we're at twenty ten 10 years, we'll start talking to the landlord about mm-hmm. another extension. And then at that point, you know, I'll be in my late forties and I'll be like, yeah, so get a young, another person to kind mm-hmm. of take the reins and, and push it into the future. Cause I, I I want the the bar to be a place for for New Yorkers and visitors Mm -hmm. to exist as a special place.
0: And it's incredible that you had those two mentors yourself, and then you are able to pass those on to the the staff and the future custodians right there.
1: That's the plan. I'm still still working on my mentor abilities. It's difficult, you know. It's (laughs) uh, still
0: learning. That's what it's all about. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be?
1: Can I spend a long time in that bar?
0: Feel free to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, if it's one last bar the rest of my life, yeah, it's, I want to make a session out of it. Um, Experimental Beach in Ibiza.
0: Okay, tell us about that.
1: So, Experimental Cocktail Club started in Paris. Uh, I don't know exactly how old they are. They're they're probably about the age of PDT, maybe, maybe a little more than 15 years old. I should know this. I'm friends with those guys. Um but they had that bar and that kind of helped change the 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 drinking in Paris. Yep. They opened in London um and then they, had, they had, they've done another thing, you know, uh, Beef Club in Paris was was great too. Um they've done a lot of very creative group and they started kind of getting into hotels and 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 getting now they have locations in Verbier, um, Venice, Menorca. Is it Menorca, or America? I think Menorca. And then Ibiza. And about four was it twenty eighteen maybe, about four years ago, I went to Ibiza and just did a, a shift at that bar. And there's like a a shipwreck shipwrecked boat, you know. I don't know if it's actually shipwrecked or if it's just a boat that's been beached or whatever, Mm -hmm. but that's one of the bars there, but it's on the, um, the West side of the Island. And it's on this like preserve kind of far away from all of the craziness of Ibiza, (laughs) Ibiza. And, um, it's the most spectacular sunset you can imagine. And then the drinks are great, obviously. And then the food's awesome. So, I would probably say that would be, if I had one last place to go, it would be there, mm-hmm. you know, because in the, in the important thing, the reason I think that is cause it's, it's not about cause bars aren't about like just about mind bending cocktails. It's about the experience and the atmosphere and, and how it makes you feel. And I can't think of a place I'd rather be than that,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: beach at that bar mm-hmm. having like a gin and tonic it's <laughs> perfect <laughs> throw in a good
0: throw in a good sunset for, for good measure there yeah, absolutely amazing mm-hmm. final question for you today if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last what would you order or make
1: I'd probably have a Negroni but I would I would have a double so I would make, if I could make it for myself, I would put two ounces each of gin, vermouth, and Campari and do a bottle. And I would keep it in the freezer, a little bit of water. Mm-hmm. And then I would pour that over, it would be need to be a big glass because it's six, six ounces <laughs> and change of liquid, over a couple of large ice cubes. And I would probably, that would be my last drink.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a and good I'd, way to go. I'm on.
1: cheating with the double, but hey,
0: <laughs> no, that's one drink still. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a very big one. I
1: yeah, I go with that because I just I love a Negroni. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously a very trendy drink, but it's also it's something you can't like a mojito or mm-hmm. like I probably drink it so fast because they have to be so fast, and then a Negroni you can, can drink sip. a little bit. Yeah, sip, yeah, yeah. So I think you can really savor that, mm-hmm. which you know, whatever position you're in where it's the last drink. <laughs> I don't know how much you want to savor that moment you're in or not. I guess it depends. But
0: well, it's a good, I, yeah, I'd make it big. I think you have to.
1: Yeah, a double. Whatever it is, it's a double. There's, <laughs> there's a a really great former bartender at PDT, uh, John DeBerry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's got a great, like, he used to have a great order. He would order a double, um, a double Kanzai kick, rocks, no rocks. So... It's a sour that he came up with, with when, back when Yamazaki 12 was affordable. It was Yamazaki whiskey, um, Madeira, lime, and orgeat. So it's kind of a plan of Cameron's kick. Yeah. Exceptional drink. Um, but if you do a double, important to a rocks glass with ice, it won't fit. So it would double Kanzai, rocks, no rocks. So it makes me, it makes me think of John. He's yeah. Maybe <laughs> we should have him on here. He's he's a great
0: yeah great guy. Yeah. Also does a little bit of work with myself at the uh, L.A. Spirits Awards. There oh say, shout okay. out to those guys. Oh awesome yeah. yeah. Well Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah no, it's been great. Thanks for thanks for having me. It was really nice to be here. Nice to have these conversation and uh good questions at the end really made me think <laughs> i'm sorry for anyone listening that I, I paused for a long time maybe they'll edit that down but i definitely gave it a lot of thought
0: well thank you very much let's go let's go grab some hot dogs and and some bacon infused bourbon there we go <laughs> okay that was a lot of info but here's the good news Every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits cocktail college is recorded and produced in new york city by myself and keith beavers vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru of course i want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the vinepair team too many awesome people to mention they know who they are but i want to give some credit here to daniel Grinberg, art director at vinepair for designing the awesome show logo and listen to that music that's a darby seaside original